Hey listeners, it's Lisa Campbell. Welcome back to Seize the Day. Over the course of three weeks in December 2022, the parties to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity met in Montreal, Canada. This was the 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties, or COP15, and it was much anticipated. Key on the agenda was a global biodiversity framework, a strategic plan and set of biodiversity targets to guide the activities of the Convention and its member states until 2030. Not only was this an important agenda item, but it was long overdue. COP15 was originally scheduled for November 2020 to be held in Kunming, China, but that plan was disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. After the meeting was rescheduled multiple times, divided into two parts, and finally relocated, COP15 Part 2 convened to finalize the strategic plan two years behind schedule. The result is the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, also known as the GBF. In this episode of Seize the Day, we return to our conservation and development series. For the 2023 series, students in my conservation and development course focus their research on COP15, the GBF, and the Convention on Biological Diversity more broadly. In today's episode, Claudia Deeg and Devin Domeyer focus on the GBF and its so-called 30 by 30 target, or target three. The target aims to conserve globally 30% of terrestrial, freshwater, and marine ecosystems in protected areas by 2030. The target is the most high profile among the GBF's 22 targets, and it's contested among state and non-state actors. In this episode, Claudia and Devon focus specifically on responses by Indigenous peoples to the problems and potentials of a 30 by 30 target. Here we go. United Nations Conference on Preserving Global Biodiversity has opened in the Canadian city of Montreal. More than 10,000 delegates, including scientists, government officials and activists, are taking part in COP15. At the opening of COP15, I stood alongside Indigenous youth as we interrupted Justin Trudeau's statement by drumming, singing and walking out. We made our point peacefully, and I am proud of how we stood in our strength and culturally demonstrated that he is breaking our laws. We just heard Takaya Blaney, slime and First Nation activist, speaking after a public protest at the opening of the 15th meeting of the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, known as COP15. This meeting in December of 2022 brought world leaders to Montreal to negotiate the next decade's strategy for biodiversity protection. One of the most controversial topics, the proposal to conserve 30% of the earth by 2030. That ambitious goal is known as 30 by 30. Reactions from indigenous groups were mixed. We have formally decided to support and endorse the marine 30-person target. We want to invite...
the paper reads to us like a proposal for a new model of colonialism. Finally, as a Canadian, but also, you know, as an Indigenous person, to be able to have that opportunity to protect our land. For the Amazon Basin, we don't just need to protect 30% of uh, the earth. We need to actually protect 80% of the like forest in parks and nature it. reserve. And so many fear that this plan will lead to further violence. This so possession of land is a land grab. It is by getting people out of their land and uh, people's rights are being violated. So, 30 by 30 was ultimately adopted by parties at COP15. But why was the 30 by 30 proposal so polarizing. And now that it's been adopted, where do Indigenous peoples stand? My name is Devin Domeyer. And I'm Claudia Deeg. We are students at the Duke University Marine Lab in Beaufort, North Carolina, and are recording this episode from the stolen traditional lands of the Lumbee and Nusiak peoples. We are not Indigenous people and acknowledge that we're settlers on this land. In this episode, we try to center Indigenous voices as we discuss biodiversity conservation under the 30 by 30 target. Let's get into it. Our story begins in Yellowstone National Park. In 1872, the U.S. government creates a 2.2 million acre protected area spanning Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. The Crow, Nez Perce, Shoshone, and Bannock First Nations are barred from their ancestral territory and hunting grounds. According to Smithsonian reporting, armed conflict between park rangers and banished natives engulfs the park for 14 years. U.S. cavalry patrol park borders until 1918 to ensure no indigenous tribes can return. Yellowstone was the world's first national park. A 2023 article by Banerjee and Dunaway calls it the beginning of a colonial model of conservation called fortress conservation, which soon swept the globe. Fortress conservation meant excluding humans from, quote, pristine wilderness in the name of protecting nature. To learn more about this topic, we interviewed Jing Corpus, lead on conservation-related targets for the International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity. This forum is an official advisory body to the Convention on Biological Diversity and represents Indigenous peoples and local communities from around the world. You'll hear her voice throughout this podcast. When we spoke, Jing reminded us that there's another layer to those images of pristine nature that we're used to seeing from David Attenborough and National Geographic. Actually, there are people there when we see National Geographic videos, it's always just this beautiful videos and it shows the animals, the very charismatic animals. And we say, where are the people? Where are the indigenous people? They're actually there. They've been coexisting with the animals and with the trees and with the plants in those places. The UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment calls fortress conservation a mistaken belief in the separation of humans and nature, which led to forcible evictions food insecurity, threats to cultural rights, as well as murder, rape, and torture. So conservation has a long history of human rights violations where indigenous communities are tortured and forcibly evicted from those land to create protected or conser conservation areas. That was Dr. Abby Sinniharper, 
African conservationist and professor at Clemson University, during an interview for the Open News Channel France 24, just after COP15. The violent history of fortress conservation, she highlights, is not relegated to the past. In 2019, investigative reporting by BuzzFeed News exposed the World Wildlife Fund for financing park rangers accused of torturing, raping, and killing dozens of people at six national parks in Cameroon, Congo, Nepal, and India. In 2021, the Kang Krachan Forest in Thailand was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site, forcibly relocating the indigenous Karan community to nearby towns. So why is conservation violence still happening to this day? First, it's not coincidental that much of the lands targeted for conservation are on indigenous territories. Land, especially in the Congo River Basin in Africa, for example, are some of the most biodiverse because indigenous and local people have stewarded those landscapes for millennials, right? And so there's ample evidence that indigenous natural resource management systems protect and enrich biodiversity in those lands. According to a 2008 World Bank report, 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity is protected by indigenous peoples. In fact, the total land area indigenous peoples manage is twice that under management by protected areas. This is according to a 2020 report on rights-based approaches to conservation, titled Cornered by Protected Areas. Indigenous peoples are now universally recognized as guardians of global resources. That also makes them targets. As Jing tells it, Many laws were adopted across the world, um, you know, just implementing that concept of fortress conservation. So many indigenous peoples ended up evicted because, you know, uh, when you're doing conservation, you're supposed to target the areas that are most um, important for biodiversity, biodiversity, the so-called key biodiversity areas. And many of those areas are in remote places. And um, sometimes the mainstream population thinks that these remote places are uninhabited. There's some sort of blindness around the careful um, you know, management actions that indigenous peoples have been carrying out. Um, for, for tens of thousands of years. So, if fortress conservation can't seem to move beyond its violent history, why have world leaders agreed to double the coverage of protected areas by 2030? Since its inception in 1992, the Convention on Biological Diversity has called protected areas the cornerstones for biodiversity conservation. But what even is a protected area? Well, according to Article 2 of the Convention text, they are geographically defined areas designated or regulated and managed to achieve specific conservation objectives. Just to be clear, that definition has evolved over time. It's been at the center of decades of debate on what it means to actually protect nature. Protected areas are not the only way to conserve nature. In 2010, the convention introduced the concept of other effective conservation measures, which are recognized as delivering conservation outcomes 
without being a formal protected area. We'll call them OECMs from here on out, and they're defined by outcomes, not objectives. OECMs were a new opportunity for indigenous stewardship to be recognized as contributing to conservation. A 2017 article in the International Journal of Protected Areas and Conservation writes that by adopting OECMs, the convention acknowledged that effective biodiversity conservation can be achieved, even if it's not the primary objective. That said, recognition as an OECM does not mean recognition of indigenous governance or self-determination. As an OECM, indigenous peoples would still need to prove conservation outcomes to some outside regulator. Many indigenous advocates remain adamant that indigenous territory as it stands must be recognized as contributing to conservation targets under self-determined governance. Here's what Jing has to say. Indigenous peoples have engaged with the protected area system, and there are many indigenous peoples who have willingly um, designated their land as part of the protected area system. And based on the right to self-determination, they should be able to do that. Um, there are some also who have started a process to include what they call indigenous peoples and con community conserved territories and areas as part of the OECM system they're comfortable with being an OECM. However, for the vast majority, a lot of indigenous territories, they, they really would prefer um, national um, uh, legal systems to recognize the self-determined declaration of indigenous peoples that parts of their territory are going to be devoted for biodiversity conservation or as a sacred site, a taboo area, and so forth. The idea of self-determined indigenous territory as independently contributing to conservation objectives is called the third pathway. So now we have three, basically. But as it stands today, protected areas, the ideas of separating humans from nature, remains the first pathway, the gold standard. According to a 2014 article in Conservation and Society, on the centuries-long legacy of protected areas, their appeal is just difficult to supplant. The authors describe protected areas as a discursive hegemony, that by defining and redefining them for 200 years, we've just further entrenched protected areas at the center of the conservation debate. Also, they're just kind of easy. Governments can draw lines on a map and call it a day. Conservation target achieved. This has led to a global phenomenon of underfunded, unmanaged protected areas, according to the same article cornered by protected areas that we referenced earlier. That said, we can't ignore that protected areas just remain appealing, and support for the target to protect 30 by 30 is staggering. Take, for example, the following statements from more than 50 world leaders calling themselves the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People. They announced their support for 30 by 30 by signing on to what they call the Leaders' Pledge for Nature. Adoptando medidas urgentes. The interests of our peoples and our planet have never been more strongly aligned. We want a real common movement for change. Now is the time to act. 
I endorse the Leader's Pledge for Nature. I endorse the Leader's Pledge for Nature. And commit to take urgent actions. Urgent actions. Urgent actions. So that the United. 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 We can reverse biodiversity loss. By 2030. By 2030. For sustainable development. I endorse the Leader's Pledge for Nature. I endorse the Leader's Pledge for Nature. For sustainable development. That video, produced by the UN, features statements from leaders of the Seychelles, the European Commission, Colombia, Sweden, and many more. So why was the expansion of protected areas seen as the best path forward? Well, as we said earlier, from its origins of colonial dispossession, protected areas as an idea had 200 years to be debated, redefined, denounced, reimagined, and as we opened COP15 in 2022, they were couched in a rhetoric villainizing the relationship between humans and nature. The language is pretty striking. Just listen to what UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had to say. A planetary emergency is upon us. Driven by the dual threats of the climate crisis and biodiversity collapse, this emergency is threatening people and planet. We are at war with nature, and nature is fighting back. But who is at war with nature? This humans versus nature narrative not only ignores the long history of indigenous stewardship, but elevates the idea of excluding people from nature. Many indigenous people fear the expansion of protected areas is just a new, green version of colonial land displacement. Jing told us, There was a, a substantial um, grouping of indigenous peoples um, aligned with um, some civil society organizations that were really against 30 by 30, right? Um, because of the legacy of fortress conservation, the legacy of evictions, rights violations, and they felt that to, uh, raising the ambition around uh, establishment of protected, protected areas would um, put immense pressure on indigenous territories uh, moving forward. But while many fear the dangers of expanded protected areas, Indigenous perspectives on 30 by 30 are diverse. Others see the target as an opportunity to secure land, tenure, and resource rights. There were also some who signed on to um, 50 by 30. There were some who really wanted protection of 50% by 2030. And in fact, the, our brothers and sisters from the Amazon, they came to Montreal to COP15 with the advocacy um, for countries to agree to protect 80% of the Amazon by 2025. Many indigenous territories are, um, are facing threats from mining and other destructive, environmentally destructive activities. And they felt that if they could transform the concept of conservation, it would put them in a stronger uh, position to resist all of these activities that, that degrade biodiversity. So many viewed it as an opportunity um, and of course, it was conditional on getting good language in there uh, for protection of indigenous rights. So, one group says that 30 by 30 is a neo-colonial land grab. Another group says 30 by 30 is an opportunity for indigenous peoples to assert their rights and power. There are many nuances to indigenous perspectives on this issue, 
including whether Indigenous territory could be recognized as protected areas, OECMs, or whether they should be seen as independently contributing to the 30 by 30 target. How could these differences in opinion be resolved at COP15, at this meeting of powerful decision makers from all around the world? How could Indigenous people even make their voices heard? Critics are expressing doubt about the UN Biodiversity Summit that's taking place in Montreal and the fact that it won't really achieve any real results to protect the environment. Indigenous participants say they want greater input into any final agreement, and they say it's simply not enough to just invite them to the summit. When COP15 began on the morning of December 7, 2022, the concerns of Indigenous peoples were far from resolved. There were um, three different sets of um, proposals just on target three. Um, the first one was to ensure that, um, that protected areas are not uh, established over indigenous territories without free prior and informed consent. The second is to recognize the governance mechanisms, uh, indigenous governance of resources and territory. Um, the third, was to recognize that indigenous territories in themselves can actually already be considered as conservation areas. But indigenous peoples don't have the same level of influence at international negotiations. They quite literally don't have a seat at the table. While all countries that signed the UN Convention on Biological Diversity are considered parties and have decision-making power, indigenous peoples are considered observers. This means they can be present at most negotiating sessions and can make statements, if invited, but have no direct power to decide on the final text. It plays out like it sounds. Countries deciding whether or not to recognize indigenous rights while they themselves have little say in it. We were like beggars, essentially, always approaching countries with our begging bowels and, you know, trying to, con uh, trying to convince them that this is a good idea, you should take it on. It's a really difficult way of doing things considering that we are self-governing um, entities. We are indigenous nations. We have our own governance structures. We are equals, no? Their status as observers doesn't mean indigenous peoples are silent. They can make statements, hold side events and press conferences, and of course, protest. But the UN still gives the ultimate power to governments many of which are complicit in the oppression of indigenous peoples, past and present. Okay, so, what happened at COP15? It was 3.30 in the morning on December 19th, when negotiators from 193 nations finally came to an agreement on a new global biodiversity framework. package is adopted. With that, 30 by 30 is no longer a proposal. It's now officially target three of the Kunming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, a historic agreement outlining goals, targets, and priorities to guide conservation practice for at least the next decade. 
Target 3 now states that the 30% goal should be achieved, quote, recognizing indigenous and traditional territories where applicable, and, quote, recognizing and respecting the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities, including over their traditional territories. Like responses to the initial 30 by 30 proposal, reactions from indigenous people and advocates were varied. We are pleased to see that in Target 3, we have followed the science and we have addressed the experience that indigenous peoples have um, in relation to fortress conservation. It's important for the rights of indigenous peoples to be there. And we, we, while it's not the exact wording that we had proposed in the beginning, we feel that it is a good compromise and that it addresses uh, the concerns that we have and it provides us with enough um, basis to continue working in full partnership with the parties, with the countries. Did you recognize that voice? That was Jing speaking during the 30 by 30 negotiations. But some advocates weren't so pleased, like Leila Salazar-Lopez, CEO of Amazon Watch, who thought the agreement didn't go far enough for conservation. Indigenous peoples, um, together with scientists and academics and activists and NGO organizations like Amazon Watch, we are calling for much beyond 30 by 30 or even 50 by 30. We're calling for 80 by 2025. And some, like Ariel Tsekwe Duranger, Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action and member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, thought the agreement didn't come close to including Indigenous leadership. So while we're seeing massive progress to recognize the rights on paper, some of the biggest challenges and risks that have come out of this COP is the fact that there aren't any real mechanisms with real teeth. There's a lot of really flowery language, but there still lacks any real substantive ways for Indigenous peoples to be leaders in this movement. The concern though with the languages that came out of this is that it's still up to the state and it still puts our communities, our lands and territories at risk for the ongoing colonial conservation movement that sees us as just someone to be consulted. There's a lot of work. So people thought that work would end at COP15, but actually that's it's a starting point. The 30 by 30 target has been officially adopted. That part is set in stone, but what happens over the next seven years is still in flux. The work of indigenous people and allies will determine the legacy of 30 by 30 and whether it's a force for good, bad, or somewhere in between. It's ambiguous, you know, it's ambiguous whether there was consensus at the global level on a third pathway. It's certainly now possible for the countries themselves to say that these are the different ways by which we recognize indigenous territories. Jing tells us that her priorities and those of the International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity are for funders to directly support indigenous territories as conservation drivers and to continue strengthening representation of indigenous peoples in international negotiation platforms.
I think it's time to build, you know, to work with governments. The, one of the first things that governments need to do um, is to revise their biodiversity strategies. They have to engage with indigenous peoples in the process of revising the national biodiversity strategies and action plans. Is there a pathway there that allows indig uh, self-determined declarations of indigenous peoples? Do you think there's a world in which indigenous First Nations become individual parties to the convention? That's the goal. This episode was written and edited by Claudia Deeg and Devin Domeyer. It was produced as part of the Seize the Day podcast series, produced by the Duke University Marine Lab. We are incredibly grateful to Jing Corpus for taking the time to be interviewed for this podcast. You can follow her at Jing underscore Corpus on Twitter. In this podcast, you heard clips of many Indigenous activists and world leaders on conservation. They are, in order, Takaya Blaney, Ludovic Burns Tukey, Suzanne Benali, Derek Reddies, Atosa Sultani, Dr. Avi Sene Harper, Elias Kimayo, Dr. Sene Harper again, Antonio Guterres, Huang Run Q, Leila Salazar Lopez, and Ariel Tsikwe Durange. Thanks for listening to Seize the Day. You'll hear more about the Convention on Biological Diversity and the GBF in upcoming episodes. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by Claudia Deeg and Devin Domeyer. Final editing was by Hafa Lobo. Our theme music is by Joe Morton, and our artwork is by Stephanie Hillsgrove. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Seize the Day Pod, and don't forget to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts.